Hey Conjurers, I'm Sham. And I'm Steph. Cannibalism is a thing of the past, right? Sure, it's easy to believe that thousands of years ago, humans didn't find it so wrong to divulge on a certain body part of someone they deemed godly, in hopes that having a part of them within themselves would somehow pass down that trait on to them. We've grown from all that, right? There's no way that would cross anyone's mind in the 21st century. Well, today I want to tell you about one man who was determined to turn his cannibalistic fantasies into reality. In 2005, Purcell, Oklahoma had a population of 6,000 people, and they were given the self-proclaimed title of the heart of the beloved state. Nothing bad happened in small towns like Purcell. It was the perfect place to raise a family, and almost everybody knew each other and looked out for each other. This is why auto mechanic Curtis Boland chose to pack up him and his daughter and move there. He was a truly devoted father to his daughter Jamie Rose Bolin, who was born on August 7th of 1995 in Edmond, Oklahoma, but grew up in Deb, Oklahoma. Jamie's mother Jennifer and her father were separated, and she worked as a truck driver 45 minutes north of Purcell in Oklahoma City. Curtis and Jamie moved into Purcell Park Apartments, and Jamie attended Purcell Intermediate School as a fifth grader. Despite the distance from her mother, she frequently visited her and enjoyed spending time with her half-sisters. Jennifer described her daughter as her little strawberry shortcake, due to her beautiful red hair and her predominant freckles surrounding her face. Jamie was an active child, cheerful and selfless. She enjoyed riding four-wheelers, singing, sewing, being part of the Girl Scouts, and lounging around watching a good movie. Her father shared that she was a very bright child who was an award-winning reader in school and extremely responsible for her age. Her neighbors and classmates remember watching her bike around the complex frequently, sharing that she seemed like a really good kid and was always polite. Jamie's father had lived in Purcell Apartments for about a year by 2006. Since Jamie's mother worked long hours in another city, she was looking forward to spending some time with her daughter and taking her Easter egg hunting. However, four days before Easter on April 12th of 2006, she got a call that no parent would ever want to receive. Ten-year-old Jamie Rose Bolin was missing. Every parent's worst nightmare. She sounds like a sweet girl, too. She sounds like every other kid. How did this happen? It all started on April 12th of 2006. Ten-year-old Jamie was spotted at the library passing some time on the computer. According to the library manager who had seen Jamie, she seemed to be just studying for school and everything seemed completely normal at the time. Jamie was seen next by several witnesses leaving the library at 4 p.m. and getting into a dark blue four-door Chevrolet Tahoe driven by a man. This would be the last time anyone claimed to see Jamie alive again. Around 6 p.m., her father Curtis felt like something was terribly wrong when Jamie didn't come home and reported her missing to the police. With the help of the witnesses that saw her leave the library, they were able to get a description of the car, which had tinted windows, a large logo on the back window that read Fox, and the letters KC imprinted on the leather seats. A few witnesses were able to make out some of the license plate, which had ZED and 69 on it, and it was made in the state of Texas. They were also able to give a description of the man driving the car. He was said to have looked to be in his early 20s, very thin, clean-cut, and had an earring in his left ear. At this point, a search party was put together to find Jamie, 
but 24 hours later with no luck, an Amber Alert for her was issued. The missing persons file gave a description of Jamie being 4 feet tall, 110 pounds, blue eyes, freckles, and red hair. According to her father and the witnesses, she was wearing a pink shirt, blue jeans, and white shoes that could have been tennis shoes or flip-flops. Investigators wanted to do all they could to find Jamie as soon as possible, and that included issuing an Amber Alert in the state of Texas. Since the car was registered to the state, the man driving the car could have easily made his way back there. However, once they reached out, they were immediately shut down because Jamie's missing persons report didn't meet the state's criteria. Well, that makes it sound like she definitely knew and trusted the person she left with. And they had enough detail of his description for the dad to recognize the description if it was someone his daughter spent regular time with. But as we saw in the Grimes sisters case, witnesses aren't always reliable. I mean, yes, if that was Jamie, her dad should instantly be able to connect who she got into the car with. That was a lot more information than most missing persons cases gets. They not only had a description of the guy, but they also had the car. Right. So can we just talk about Texas and how Jamie's case didn't meet their requirements for an Amber Alert? I mean, what the hell? (laughs) Right. And it's crazy to think that a missing 10-year-old girl doesn't meet another state's criteria at all. The information Texas needed in order to issue an Amber Alert included the suspect's name, a full license plate number, and there wasn't enough evidence that Jamie hadn't been taken against her will since it looked like she willingly got into the suspect's vehicle that day. This wasn't totally out of the minds of the Oklahoma investigators either. You see, they believed it was possible Jamie was communicating with the man that picked her up on the computer that day via emails. Computer technicians were brought into the investigation to examine the library computers to find any evidence on what might have happened to Jamie and what she was doing at the library that day. While this was happening, a neighbor of Jamie's came forward and said that Jamie couldn't have been seen getting into the vehicle with a man because she had seen her riding by her apartment between 4 p.m. and 5 p.m. This led investigators to question more of Jamie's neighbors to see if they witnessed the same thing. They did admit to seeing Jamie riding her bike around the complex that day, but they also said that she had been seen talking to 26-year-old Kevin Underwood. This didn't alarm her neighbors as much at the time, because Kevin wasn't just Jamie's neighbor. He lived in the apartment directly below her. Shortly after, the investigators interviewed everyone at the apartment complex, and the investigation went into full swing. According to neighbors, caution tape surrounded Jamie's part of the complex, and investigators were seen coming in and out. Investigators did call off the Amber Alert, and there were rumors of a suspect being in custody. The police weren't telling the public everything, but they did deliver the heartbreaking news that Jamie's body was found in Kevin Underwood's apartment. They left the details and cause of her death out of that statement, which could have been to protect Jamie's family. So those witnesses were mistaken when they saw a girl that now we know wasn't Jamie getting into a car at the library. At least one of her neighbors came forward to get the investigation back on the right track. Can you imagine if the neighbor would have kept to herself? Jamie would have been right under their nose and they would have missed out on finding her sooner or at all for that matter. Her family must have been devastated that she wasn't coming home alive. Concealing the cause of death is unusual. Did her family need protecting for some reason? That protection was more than needed, because upon receiving the news about his daughter's death, Curtis collapsed and needed to be hospitalized. More information came to light that the state prosecutor announced that Jamie was in fact murdered in one of the most heinous ways possible. 
he made it clear that he would not only be seeking to try Kevin for first-degree murder, but he would be seeking the death penalty. Kevin was known by his peers as a quiet man who kept to himself, and he would often be spotted by neighbors sitting on the balcony of his apartment watching children play, with most of them assuming that he had children of his own. One neighbor, Daniel Diney, even spoke to reporters stating, and I quote, We'd see her around with her friends, riding their bikes around and stuff. She looked like she got along with everyone and was an energetic girl. I never really seen Kevin Underwood when we were living here in the six to seven months we've lived here. End quote. Oh, that's so horrible for her family. By the way, any person watching young kids play on a regular basis without ever being seen with a kid of their own is a huge red flag. Yes, and this is why it's so important to stay vigilant. If one neighbor would have cared enough to figure out which kid was his, they would have spotted a predator a long time ago. Exactly. How did police originally figure out Kevin was their guy? Well, during the first few days of Jamie missing, investigators refused to look past the last two sightings of Jamie. The witnesses at the library who saw her get into a vehicle with the man driving and the neighbors witnessing her talking to Kevin. Two days after Jamie Boland went missing, on April 14th, Kevin was spotted on his way home by two Oklahoma Highway Patrol officers and an FBI agent at a routine roadblock near the apartment complex. Something about him seemed very off and suspicious, so they decided to take him in for questioning. When they began to ask him about him being seen with Jamie, he said he last saw her in a blue strapless shirt and pink shorts. This was alarming to investigators, because according to the witnesses that had seen Jamie that day, she was last seen wearing a pink shirt, blue jeans, and white shoes. They didn't have anything to hold him on, so they decided to drop him off at home, but upon entering his apartment complex, the investigators asked if they could have a look around his place, to which Kevin agreed. Once inside, they started going through all the rooms, and located in his closet was a large bin sealed with duct tape. When questioned about what the box contained, Kevin said it was just his comic book collection. The investigators knew it was worth checking out, but as they went to open the box, Kevin said something they were not expecting. He said, and I quote, Go ahead and arrest me. She's in there. I hit her and I chopped her up. Kevin was then arrested for the murder of Jamie Bolin. Comic books sealed with duct tape? Seriously, dude? He just lets police in to search his place, no warrant, no problem, and expects they won't find his super suspicious taped up box. Even if you did keep your comics in a box, to duct tape it closed is just super weird. I have no idea what he could have said, though, that made sense besides there's a dead body in there. I think we all already know, but go ahead and tell us what they found in that box. Over the next few days, investigators and crime scene analysts were in and out of Kevin's apartment. Jamie's body was exactly where Kevin said they would find her, stuffed in the large plastic tub, naked, and surrounded by towels used to soak up her blood. Upon first glance, the condition of her body included deep saw marks on her neck and fingernail marks on her nose. Kevin would later admit that he had plans of dismembering and cannibalizing her. According to investigators, the autopsy report would later show Jamie's cause of death as asphyxiation and blunt force trauma to the head. Jamie was put through a lot prior to her death, including blunt force trauma to the back, right arm, right thigh, left thigh, and left ankle. Her time of death was determined to be the evening she went missing. 
The saw marks on her neck were determined to have happened after Jamie was murdered, and the investigators believe this is when Kevin began the process of dismembering her. Back at the police station, Kevin was prepared to make a full confession. The full confession is over an hour and a half long, and honestly, it's very hard to listen to. We will link it on our website, but listener discretion is advised. Seriously, Conjurers, this guy's confession is traumatizing. What he did to Jamie and what he fantasized about is so sick. If you choose to listen to that confession, listen with caution. It was so hard to listen to, and it's so much worse than we make it out to be, so please save yourself the disgust. However, if you're anything like us, you'll probably be up for the challenge. If not, don't worry. We've got you covered with all the information you need without having to subject yourself to the gory details. That's right. Steph is going to break down the confession for you guys once we get back from a short break. In the confession, Kevin describes basic things like his car being a silver 1998 Buick Sabre, which was currently parked right outside his apartment his apartment address, and the location of Jamie's bike, which he dismembered and placed under his bed and closet to transport out when he had time. Investigators asked him to take them back to when the thought of taking Jamie began and when he started to make plans for it. He explained that the thoughts started coming to him months prior and he thought maybe it was because of the medication he started taking. However, this was the same medication Kevin had taken years before and it didn't cause him any issues. The medication was Lexapro, which is a common antidepressant also used to treat anxiety disorders. Kevin went on to say this medication caused him to fantasize about different things. On average, the most common side effects of this medication are headache, nausea, diarrhea, dry mouth, increased sweating, feeling nervous, restless, fatigue, and insomnia. Kevin later admitted that the medication worked for him and it didn't alter his ability to be fully conscious of his actions. Okay, I've been on Lexapro because I suffer from anxiety and PTSD. And let me tell you something, I have never suffered from sick thoughts. A little nausea, sure, but for him to try and blame his anxiety medication is a stretch. Right? There are some serious medications that have side effects of psychosis, but that isn't one of them. So what exactly were these thoughts, Steph? When asked to describe what these fantasies consisted of, I'll read straight from the transcript of what Kevin said, and I quote, cannibalism. I wanted to know what it tasted like, and the thought of eating someone was appealing to me. Then it kept evolving from then since I've been sexually frustrated. I haven't had sex in four years. The investigator asked him if he was a fan of Jeffrey Dahmer, one of the most famous criminals in the United States, known for his lust for eating human flesh. He said he didn't really study him at all, but he did have a DVD set of an A&E special in his living room that was about Manson, Dahmer, and two other killers, but he wasn't that into studying them. Well, we all have a set of those. (laughs) (laughs) He went on to explain that he had been planning on committing murder and cannibalism for months prior to Jamie's disappearance. He even admitted that he just had plans to eat someone, but later changed his mind and decided to also sexually assault them too. His victim could have been anyone. In fact, age, race, and gender didn't matter to Kevin. Jamie just happened to be an unfortunate, vulnerable victim that he decided to go after, but she wasn't Kevin's first target in the beginning. He said over the months, they began having more and more conversations, and he decided she was too nice to harm. 
He had no idea her name was Jamie until her description came out in the newspaper, and he believed she was 12 years old, not 10. I'd like to know what's the difference between 10 and 12 years old. (laughs) (laughs) And you expect us to believe that you didn't know her name? I'm sorry. I know this man was planning on going after this child, period. He's clearly a pedophile. A 10-year-old or a 12-year-old, still a child. Of course he knew her name. She lived right upstairs. He's full of it. So how did he describe his sick fantasies going down? Well, his plan for his victim was to yank them into his apartment and restrain them with the duct tape that he had purchased recently and handcuffs from his collection of sex toys. He even went on to describe that the handcuffs weren't secure, but were the ones with the release on them. But he figured a child wouldn't be able to tell the difference. He continued by saying, I was going to make them sit down and watch porn with me and then have sex with them. He thought the porn itself might turn on the victim and then it would become consensual. But if not, he would proceed by force. Immediately after sex, his actions would turn violent and he would torture them, putting large objects inside of them while sticking needles around their body. He had intentions to drag them to the bathtub while still bound and gagged and saw their head off and let them drain out. As if that wasn't sadistic enough, he was going to sit the head on his desk in his room to watch him while he slept with the corpse and performed necrophilism with it for a few days. To cannibalize the body, he planned on using things he already had around, like his barbecue skewers, a hacksaw to get to the organs, and meat tenderizer. He was then going to eat everything on the body he could and dispose of the rest of it by breaking the bones and dumping them in a ditch. But he wanted to keep the skull as a souvenir. When investigators asked him if he wrote any part of his fantasy down on a computer or anything, he said no, but he did keep a lot of pornography. He claimed that although he didn't have any child pornography saved and claimed to never have looked at the stuff before, he did have a few images saved from a child's swim catalog in a separate file. Even though he previously stated that his cannibalistic thoughts started a few months ago, he finally admitted that it actually been a year prior, as well as his pornographic search on the topic. It was beyond him wanting to taste human body parts. I feel like the real motive was to rape someone, then murder them, so they're helpless as he continues to take advantage of their body. I completely agree. His fantasies seem to really be sexually driven, with cannibalism as an afterthought he was curious about. I agree. But why Jamie, though? Was she just the easiest to go after? Well, when asked when he first noticed Jamie, he said he had seen her around the apartment frequently. He thought she was cute and all, but wasn't really his type, but she was nice. He even said she had been in his apartment a few times prior to the day of the murder. He would often be outside watching the kids with his pet rat on his shoulder, and Jamie thought it was cute. Two weeks prior to the murder, he was sitting in his living room with his door wide open watching TV when he claimed Jamie wandered in asking if she could pet his rat, and he let her come in and feed it. So he knew she trusted him. One week before the incident, Jamie's father had asked her to go downstairs and use the payphone to order them a pizza. When she passed by Kevin's apartment, his door was wide open, so she asked him if she could use his phone. She stepped inside for a minute to grab the phone, but immediately went outside the door to make the call in fear of getting in trouble for going into a stranger's apartment. Kevin had plenty of opportunities to take Jamie, and didn't because he thought she was too nice. 
The next part of the interview goes into detail about what happened to 10-year-old Jamie the day she was kidnapped and murdered. This may be hard for some of our listeners, especially parents out there. So once again, I'm going to do my best to explain the interview in detail without being overly graphic. All right, Steph, um, I don't think I can relive this part of the confession again. So I think you got this part covered. I'll just be logging off a bit and you can discuss this with our conjurers. Uh, No way. (laughs) If I have to tell it, you have to listen to it. Besides, the conjurers need your amazing commentary. Oh, my God. Okay, fine. Take us back (laughs) to that day. Okay. On the afternoon of April 12th, 2006, around 3.30 p.m., Kevin had just gotten home from his parents' house, where he always went to do his laundry. He noticed Jamie's bike was gone, which struck him as odd, because she usually got home from school around 3.45 or 4 p.m. She also never rode her bike. She usually walked home. At this point, he knew she had come home and left again. This development threw off his plans because he had wanted to grab her as soon as she walked into the complex before she even got to her apartment. That way, it would look like she went missing prior to making it home at all. So he hovered around waiting for her to show back up and 15 minutes later she did. She propped her bike up against the stairwell and went into her apartment. She came back down a few minutes later in a new outfit. Before heading upstairs, she shared with Kevin that she had come all the way home but forgotten her house keys. She had to go all the way back to school to get her keys and ride up a big hill on such a hot day. So she went upstairs to change into new clothes and came out with a cup of milk and ice in a glass to drink. Kevin admitted that the glass was also in his apartment next to the dismembered bicycle. She then continued conversation with Kevin and asked if she could go inside his place to see his rat, to which he welcomed her in. Jamie sat on his floor playing with the rat as they both watched one of his favorite shows, Spongebob. Even though he had his handcuffs on the shelf and a piece of duct tape ready to go on his TV stand, he hesitated about harming her and worried he might get caught while doing so. After five minutes, he decided he was going to skip over the original plan or fantasy and knock her unconscious before raping her. He took the cutting board he had laid out on his TV stand and hit her over the head. When the investigators asked him if Jamie had said anything afterwards, he said she just kept saying she was sorry and started screaming. Can you imagine? She was terrified and she thought that she did something wrong. He got home at the time he thought she would be getting home from school and was disappointed his plans had been altered. He had planned the whole thing out in detail. It's so heartbreaking to know she was apologizing to him. I mean, you think that that would make him stop if he felt some type of way about her. He is a monster. He continued to beat her with the cutting board over and over. However, Jamie put up a fight, got up, and said, let me go, I won't tell. Once he realized she wasn't going down, he grabbed her from behind and put his hand over her mouth and nose. He then got her onto the ground on her back and sat on her stomach. She managed to turn over to her stomach and desperately began reaching for anything around her until her body went limp. It took nearly 15 to 20 excruciating minutes for Jamie to die. He drug her body into the bedroom and closed the door. Then he made his way outside to get her bike and brought it into his walk-in closet to take care of later. 
When police asked him if he was turned on by any of his actions during that time, he admitted he was extremely sexually aroused the entire time. After he got the bike in, he went into the bedroom and stripped himself and Jamie completely naked. We're going to spare you guys the graphic details, but Kevin claimed to have not gone all the way, but in more than one way, he raped 10-year-old Jamie that day. He planned to move her to the couch, but she was too heavy for him to carry, and he felt too exhausted. He dragged her to the bathroom, which was closer to his room, and draped her over the bathtub. He grabbed a big knife and tied her hair back to avoid getting blood in it and began sawing at her neck. When he was too tired to continue, he looked around and noticed just how much blood was coming out of her. At that moment, he wished he had never murdered Jamie, but it was too late to turn back. So now it was time to work on disposing of the body altogether. I'm so glad we didn't go into details about exactly what he did to her in that bedroom. No adult, let alone child, should ever be violated in that way. The details are horrific. Out of respect for Jamie and her family, that is all we're going to say about what he did to her body. So what did he do? Leave her there? For a while. He placed candles and incense in the bathroom and closed all the doors, hoping to avoid any smells of a dead body coming from his apartment. For the next couple of hours, Kevin sat on his computer talking to women while a lifeless Jamie lay bleeding in the other room. He thought that if she lost enough blood, he could move her without worrying about getting it all over his apartment. He said he started to feel very sick at that point, not from what he had done, but because he was so exhausted and hot and his body didn't do well in warm temperatures. Oh, poor Kevin. Poor Kevin. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so in between talking to women online, Kevin was going outside to join the search for Jamie. If he joined the investigation, he figured he would be the last person they would look at. One of the ways he pretended to be a concerned neighbor was when he noticed Jamie's dad driving around looking for her at 5 p.m. He stood out on the curb, hoping he would ask him if he had seen her so he could say no. His plan worked, and a frantic Curtis Bolin pulled up to Kevin and asked him if he had seen her. To which Kevin replied, I saw her coming home from school. She went upstairs, came back down, and rode off on her bike, and that was the last time I saw her. He then went on to say he hoped he found her soon, and he would love to stay out and help, but he had to get to bed because he had an early shift in the morning. He then went inside and moved her body into the bin using a tarp and taped it up to avoid any smells leaking from it. He spent the night cleaning out the bathtub and scrubbing the whole bathroom. When asked how and when he planned on disposing of the body, Kevin said since fires had been breaking out all over the forest surrounding Purcell at the time, he was planning on dragging her body into a forest and setting it on fire in hopes it would burn all of Jamie's remains. As we know, investigators searched his home two days after her murder, so he never got the chance to finish out his plan. What an idiot. He thought the best way to not attract attention to her body was to start a wildfire around it. <laughs> it probably would have destroyed the evidence pretty well, but there's always an investigation into the start of fires. He still would have gotten caught, I think. He's not exactly the sharpest tool in the shed. I mean, he's clearly an idiot. <laughs> I'm just glad the investigation didn't drag out and they caught Jamie's killer. Kevin Underwood's crime was not taken lightly by the community, investigators, jury, or state prosecutor. 
After hearing the eerie confession tape provided by investigators to the courts, District Attorney Greg Mashburn made the decision to seek the death penalty through lethal injection. Even though Kevin was later diagnosed with schizophrenial personality disorder, which was later changed to a diagnosis of Asperger's syndrome, it didn't change the prosecutor's mind. He knew he had to convince a jury of 12 that this crime went beyond having a mental illness. On February 29, 2008, a jury found Kevin guilty of first-degree murder after deliberating for 23 minutes. This quick verdict is attributed to the showing of Underwood's videotaped confession. After another eight hours of deliberation, the same jury recommended the death penalty on March 7, 2008. On April 3, 2008, McLean County District Judge Candace Blalick approved the recommended death sentence. Kevin Ray Underwood was sentenced to death for the murder of Jamie Rose Bolin. Nine years later, at the age of 36, he issued an appeal that was denied. Kevin will remain at the Oklahoma State Penitentiary in McAllister, Oklahoma, until he's put to death. Jamie's father would later share that she had so much to live for. He had plans of helping her get ready for prom, dropping her off at college, and walking his little girl down the aisle. If you're anything like me after hearing this case, you'll find it hard to believe that Jamie wasn't his intended victim all along. You might think that he was grooming her to trust him for that very day he would take her life. Jamie didn't just stumble upon a predator. She didn't do anything wrong. She deserved to live a long and happy life. Only 10 years on this earth with your child is unimaginable for any parent. So with that said, hug your kids a little tighter and teach them predator behavior early on because you never really know your neighbors. Even though Jamie wasn't missing for long, there are children whose families and communities are still looking for them. The National Center for Missing and Exploited Children offers a variety of resources, including the distribution of pictures and posters of missing children nationwide. They also provide information and technical assistance to citizens and communities. In addition, they provide training, technical assistance, and technical support to state missing children's clearinghouses and to state and local law enforcement agencies. For more information on current missing children, go to www.missingkids.com or call 800-THE-LOST. That's 800-843-5678. To view images, information, and sources from this case, visit our website at crimeandconjure.com. Research and writing for this episode was done by Stefan Sham. Editing of this episode by Denver Fortner Productions with music by Jordan Alina. Be sure to check out our Instagram at Crime and Conjure Podcast for our question of the week. Sham, what's our conjure tip of the week? Many people believe that carrying an acorn in your pocket is a way to protect you from physical harm and ensure a long life. An acorn can also be placed on the window seal or hung from a window shade to protect the entire home. Carrying an acorn with you will also promote good luck, wisdom, and personal power. I love this one. Trees provide some of the best amulets free of charge. Okay, Conjurers, we'll be back next week with another episode. Until Until next time, time, stay stay vigilant, vigilant, Conjurers. Conjurers.